Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. Uh, this evening's going to be a very interesting topic. It's going to kind of go in a little bit into what we talked about last week. And if you're interested in interested in what is a classical deist, and we did get a little bit into dark matter and dark energy, check out last week's podcast. We had uh, Lewis Laughlin on. Um, the gentleman, he had a, a, a quite a bit of information. The first half was a little different. Um, it was kind of hard to get into because I have no idea what dark matter is or dark energy. And Lewis kind of went into some explanations that were a little bit over my head. But the second half was really good. Um, got to, got into what it was to be a deist and how that you know pertains to him in a religious aspect and what God is and all of that good stuff. So if that's of interest to you, check out last week's podcast. But this week's podcast... We're going to be talking about Jesus. We're going to get into who is Jesus, what was what was Jesus, and what it was like, I guess, to be around Jesus in the time that he was here. And I have an author coming on this evening to talk about Jesus. He's very decorated in the in the community of Jesus, and he actually has a book. It's right here, front and center, right in the middle on the Talk Junkies table. Uh, his name is Randall Gilmore. How are you doing, sir? Thanks for joining. I'm doing great, Paul. It's really good to be with you tonight. Yeah, great to be with you too, man. Um, so is this, I think you, is this the only book you've written or have you written other books? Yeah, I've written a few other books, um, one on conflict resolution, and uh, that's really what the, the emphasis of my doctorate is in. And so uh, I've written a book on that, and I just completed a manuscript recently that's called Story Deep, and that's how to find hidden meanings, uh, uh, hidden treasures of meaning as you study Bible stories. So uh, I really believe in studying Bible stories from a story perspective. And I've spent the last few years really getting into that, uh, that hermeneutic. I've heard you use that word before in the podcast. Definitely. Uh, getting into that. And uh, it's been really interesting. And so I just, just completed a manuscript on that. Fantastic. I definitely want to get into that. But just before we dive in any deeper, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and how you got to where you are. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first, I, I became a Christian when I was just a, a boy, and uh, I heard about Jesus at a young age, and, and uh, I believed. And that stuck with me all throughout my teen years and into my time in college. I went to a Bible college for my undergrad, and shortly after graduating from Bible college, I, I became a pastor of a small church and was there for a number of years and actually was a pastor of a local church for 35 years. Uh, along the way, I, I did some other uh, graduate work in organizational communication and conflict resolution. And by the way, those go really well with other ministry things yeah. uh, that you have to encounter. But um, I, I was always interested in really the larger story of who Jesus is. And uh, back in, in uh, 2006, my wife and I took a trip to Japan, and uh, in Japan, we encountered all kinds of people who have no idea who Jesus is. Uh, I remember riding on a train once with a, a young Japanese man, and uh, I, could, I couldn't speak any Japanese, and he could only speak a little bit of English, but I asked him uh, if he had ever heard of Jesus Christ, and his eyes lit up, and he said, oh yeah, Jesus Christ superstar. And I said, no, that's not at all what I was talking about, because Jesus Christ Superstar happened to be kind of going around Japan at that point. And so that's what he knew. 
And, and I told him, that's not at all what I mean. That's not who Jesus is. And I tried to explain to him and was really frustrated in my um, inability to better articulate Jesus' story. And that just motivated me to kind of go back and, and return to that and um, also study the, the dynamics of story and just become better able to better tell who Jesus is. Okay, so like you kind of were stating earlier, you kind of, you've gotten the hermeneutic side of it kind of, because um, there's so many things that get lost in translation. Right. You, you go back to the, the very first Bible, um, which is very fascinating because like we talked about on the phone, I would never have seen this. I mean, I would never have seen this Bible if it weren't for TikTok, but it was just this gentleman who started just bringing out these these Bibles from like the 1400s and that they were handwritten every single page. You, you know, you can't mess up those types of things. Right. Um, but the first Bible was written in Hebrew, was it? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and then the New Testament in Greek with some Aramaic here or there. Okay, so I guess let's just kind of start right there because we're going to get into the story or the story or the life of Jesus. I, I want I know it's almost impossible to bring in evidence. I mean, I'm not going to say impossible because I know I know you're going to come in with some some evidence, um, but I want to prove to people that Jesus existed, you know, through evidence in those times types of things. But sure. let's get back to the hermeneutics aspect of it first. How do we not lose? part of, uh, of the story throughout the Bible through hermeneutics. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, through, over time, you, you would think that there would be some evolution of the text, perhaps. Um, but at the same time, you have to understand, first of all, the Jews. And the Jews were, were very, um, uh, you know, very intentional about preserving the Torah, the first five books of the, the Old Testament and very intentional about preserving the other scriptures that they, they uh, refer to as scriptures. And so it wasn't as though um, people were just playing fancy and loose with that. And there, there was uh, scholarship put into what does the text actually say and whether or not that was a reliable translation and so on. Um, and and there's, there's really a whole science to that part of having confidence in the scriptures and what the scriptures have to say. It's known as textual criticism. Now, I'm not an expert in textual criticism, but it's very interesting. And there are some things that, that go into that that are not all that different from uh, how you might study the historicity of any given text. So, you know, the Bible happens to be one of the most well-attested um, texts of, of history. And that means that there are a lot of of uh, what they call witnesses to those original manuscripts. And we don't have original manuscripts, but there are so-called witnesses to those where scholars have been able to piece together what that original text is likely, very likely to have said. And so we believe as Christians that that text was preserved in what we have now in in copies in the Hebrew, copies in the Greek with that little bit of Aramaic thrown in. And we have various translations in various languages, but we have reliable translations. So you can tell whether or not there's a reliable translation of a particular Greek word or a particular Hebrew word. So I, I think that if you took the time to look at, at um, the way textual criticism works, 
you can see that it is a pretty sophisticated science. It's not something that's just thrown on against the wall and somebody hopes that it sticks. And so, uh, with that, we have confidence that we are, are looking at um, a, a text that is authentic and we believe the preserved, we refer to it as the preserved word of God. Sure. So when was the New Testament written? Well, the New Testament was written over uh, a period of years from uh, probably some of the earliest writings were of Paul, uh, who happens to have the same name that you have. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he wrote uh, what we call the epistles or the letters of Paul, probably around 40 to 50 uh, to 60 AD. So we're talking maybe 30 years after uh, Jesus had died and rose again. And then the Gospel of John and Revelation are typically thought of as the, the last of the, the books of the New Testament. And those were uh, are dated to have been written in like 90 AD, maybe as far as 95 AD. And that was written in English? No, in Greek. Or Greek, sorry. Yeah, in Greek. So before the, the New Testament was, was written, most everyone kn knew how to read in Hebrew at that time to read the Bible. That was like the universal language at the time. So the Jews, no, the Jews would have uh, known Hebrew for sure. They right. would have been taught Hebrew from from birth, and they would have been uh, taught that in in their their rabbinical schools. Um, but I want to come back to the the New Testament for just a moment because yeah. even though um, the Apostle Paul, let's say, let's just use the date fifty A.D. or sixty A.D. that he wrote uh, some of his letters. Um, that's still 30 years after the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, one of the things, though, that's very interesting is that Paul, in his epistles, actually quotes from what we recognize as, as early Christian creeds or hymns. And, uh, for example, one of the things that he says, and I'll just read it so that I, I make sure that I'm reading it, accurately for for everyone listening but he he says in his letter to the corinthians that i received um i delivered to you he said as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so those words, what he says he received, um, those words are known to be part of a Christian creed, an early creed, uh, or a creed of the early church. And one of the questions that uh, scholars have wrestled with, Paul said that he received it. The question is, when did he receive it? So what we know is that Jesus was crucified about A.D. 33, and more or less. And the uh, historians have pieced together that Paul became a Christian, who, by the way, was an enemy yeah. of Christians before he became a Christian. He became a Christian likely within a year and a half to two years after the resurrection of Jesus. And for the first three years after he became a Christian, he said that he went to the desert and he, he didn't meet with anyone except for the Lord himself. After those three years, then he went to Jerusalem and he says that he met with Peter and James. And most scholars believe that that's where he received this creed that says, 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and then rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, what we know is that by the time, uh, we, we know about the time that Paul went to Corinth, where he said, I told you this creed, I had received it, and I told it to you. And I, I believe that was around AD 51 or 52. And, and so this is really fascinating stuff because we have some insight into what the earliest Christians were telling each other in their creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That was enough in circulation that three or four years, five years after Jesus' resurrection, when Paul was in Jerusalem, he heard it from Peter and James. And then Paul began to spread it as he, he went around. One of the things that's interesting to me about that creed is that it doesn't say that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. It says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And a lot of people, we say Jesus Christ together so much that they, they start thinking that, well, Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. But uh, that's not the case. Christ is a title. And so when Paul quotes that creed, Christ died for our sins, there's a hidden proposition in that creed. And the hidden proposition is that Jesus is the Christ. And that was a very controversial proposition. And the reason why it was so controversial, it was because Jesus died. And no one expected the Christ to die. And so uh, if you're going to say that Jesus is the Christ and he died, you better have a good explanation for that. And of course, there were were two explanations that are kind of part of this creed. Number one, he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And then the second part was that he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. So both of those things are, are sort of apologetics for defending who Jesus is, that he is not just a good person. He's not just a prophet, but he really is the Christ of God, the one that God promised long ago. Right. So what is a creed real quick? Sorry. A creed would be just like a, a, a you know, in a culture of orality, uh, it would be some forming something that would be memorable and oral that uh, would be like uh, putting together um, uh, a, a statement or two that would said, you know, these are things we want you to remember. So almost, it, it almost went viral in a sense. It did. Yeah, it right. did go viral. Right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And I mean, it, the fascinating thing about it is that these kinds of things, these kinds of creeds, and there are several of those that are in the New Testament. Um, so, you know, we don't just go back to Paul's letters. We can go back to saying, hey, this is what the early church was talking about. There are several of those. And fascinating about those is that something like, the one that I just read from 1 Corinthians 15, um, the development of that can be traced back to that five-year period after Jesus' death and resurrection. That is an amazingly short period of time for something like a creed to develop, um, right. especially if, if somebody were to say, well, you know, it's just made up or just a myth. Well, those kinds of myths, quote-unquote, those take a lot of time. 
to develop. Oh yeah, because travel's not what it was today. It's exactly. just the the way for it to to spread as far as Jerusalem whenever he got there. Like you said, that 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 had taken a massive amount of time, and for it to even make it there, that almost gives a a little bit more evidence to suggest that that truly did happen, or something happened of a magnitude that made everyone go, "Oh my goodness, what just happened?" Right, and and that kind of gets into the historicity part, and it, what's fascinating to me about that is the question: of, Well, how do you know anything about history? Nowadays, we have audio recordings and video recordings, and so we've got a lot of good stuff that way that can help us put uh, things together as to what happened uh, in recent history. But going back, you didn't have those things. So how do we know anything? How do we know that uh, uh, Shakespeare existed? How do we know that Julius Caesar existed? You know, all those kinds of questions. Be through writing. Right. Be through writing, right, and faith in those writings, right? Or... Like well, there are, there are actually, without faith, you take the faith out of it for a moment, and there are certain tools that historians use to determine the historicity of something. And, and when I say determine the historicity, I'm really talking about probability now, because since we weren't there, and if you go back a long ago, you, you, have, you, you can't be 100% certain until faith enters in, and that's where the certainty goes. But as far as without faith, you look for things like what's called multiple attestation. In other words, you get more than one source that is talking about this. And in the case of the New Testament, um, New Testament scholars uh, in in Jesus, they talk about Matthew and and, uh, Luke being one source, um, Mark being a source, John being a source. And in the, then you can get into some extra biblical sources. So there's uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that mentions Jesus and, and mentions things about Jesus. There's Tacitus, that's a Roman historian. There's another historian called Suetonius. Um, and by piecing all of these things together, any serious, and I, I'm using that word with intention, any serious historical scholar will agree on several minimal facts about Jesus. They'll, they'll agree that Jesus existed. That's number one. He lived. They'll agree that he was known as a miracle worker and an exorcist. Now, this is not to say um, whether it proves that miracles happen. It's that, that's a whole other study. But the historians will, will say as, as they study um, what they call the historical Jesus. Jesus existed. He was known as a miracle worker. He was known as an exorcist. He was known to have died by crucifixion. And there's all kinds of evidence that people don't get hung on a cross to die and survive. And I think there's, there's uh, three known cases of people who were crucified in uh, you know, taken down from the cross, uh, and and they one of them, um, excuse me, I know that two of them died afterwards. So they, you know, the, the nature of Roman, the scientific nature of crucifixion, you don't survive. Right. So Jesus died on the cross. Then there's all kinds of agreement as well that uh, Jesus' followers had experiences that they believed were appearances of the resurrected Jesus. 
So do you think that it could have been bodily? I mean, I mean, I think that that's absolutely. What, or was it more spiritually? And what kind, what what kind of evidence is there to suggest that it was bodily? The, the people who said they saw Jesus claimed that it was a bodily resurrection. Jesus said that he was going to raise bodily, and the people who saw him, who said they had a, the appearances of him, they made that claim. And here's the really interesting thing: is they they uh, they died for that claim, and they not I mean not just died of old age, they were willing to suffer and and die for that claim. Now you you can just imagine if you and I conspired to make something up, and uh, all of a sudden our necks are on the line, and multiply us by six, so there's twelve of us now. You you could imagine that somebody is going to say, "Hey, wait a minute, we made this up." It was just a spiritual appearance, but nobody did that. They all went to their graves having suffered and died for that, that belief that Jesus had appeared to them bodily. Now, what's really interesting is that Paul was an enemy of Jesus, and he made the, the assertion that Jesus had appeared to him. Jesus' brother, James, was a skeptic originally. I mean, there's, there's documentation that he didn't originally believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and it was only after the resurrection and Jesus' appearance to him resurrected that James made the, the conversion to believe that Jesus. So you have skeptics and enemies kind of changing their minds about Jesus once they encounter him resurrected. So there's some pretty powerful evidence that, that Scholars agree on, they agree on these minimal facts, and there, there's a um, kind of a famous apologist, Gary Habermas, who coined that term, minimal facts, but they agree on that, the scholars do. And then you have to test theories about how to explain, for example, the empty tomb. How, how do you explain uh, the empty tomb if these minimal facts are, are true? Somebody might say, well, I believe the disciples came and stole the body. Well, here again, you mean to tell me that they would stick with that when they're you know, themselves hanging on a cross or they're you know, in, in prison or they're getting their heads cut off or whatever? Somebody's going to give. In, in so that. real quick, so you're talking about the tomb where Jesus has bones or, buried. Right, yeah. right, or buried, yeah. yes. So how, how much longer after he was resurrected did he, did he stay on earth? Yeah, the story is that 40 days. Okay. Yeah, so he appeared um, to the apostles, but he appeared at one point, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And this is another interesting thing because some people say, well, this was just hallucinations. But there is no record anywhere in history, none of people being uh, receiving mass hallucinations that are the same. So if you and I have a hallucination about something, even we're not going to have the same hallucination. The only way that that would be possible is if, and this is the only account that I've heard of people having the same type of hallucination is if they're with a shaman and they are doing like a guided, uh, a guided ayahuasca trip, which I've heard multiple accounts of people taking ayahuasca and they have the same hallucination or the same trip per se from what I, from what I, my understanding. Yeah. And but there's no I, way I 500, that. there's no way 500 people were all on ayahuasca when, whenever they saw an appearance <laughs> of Jesus, you know? 
Exactly. And it's, you know, the documentation of that among psychologists and psychiatrists, I think it would be very interesting to search for that and find out what that was about. But th this is um, this is one of the things I think that's really key, that resurrection of Jesus uh, is, you know, a key part of that story. But it's only the climax of the story. And, you know, I was talking with you earlier tonight on the phone about the larger story of Jesus that begins actually back in the Old Testament. And uh, I'll just walk through that if you don't mind. Not for, at all, yeah. Briefly. But um, that story, um, without quoting, you know, we'd be here all night reading through the whole Bible, so I'll just summarize. But sure. the, the Bible uh, asserts that um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it, the Bible teaches, actually, that God is a great king. And he made the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth to be places where his rule as king would be fully honored and obeyed. And um, he also created the first human beings we know as Adam and Eve. Everybody's heard of Adam and Eve. And he blessed them with four types of perfect relationships. The first type of perfect relationship was with him and then with each other. And they had a perfect relationship with self. There was no shame. So they were, you know, integrity means fully whole. They were fully whole and no shame. And they had a perfect relationship with creation. And there's some really interesting things, dynamics about that, because one of the things that God had, had done is said to them in this perfect condition that I want you to have dominion over the earth. And there's this dynamic of learning and collaborating and creating. In fact, I, if I could summarize that part of the story, it's, it's that. Learn, collaborate, and create. Learn, collaborate, and create. And you can imagine the growth in a perfect environment that there would be. But God had one prohibition, and that was don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And uh, he said to them, in the day that you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. You're going to surely die. And, you know, there's been all sorts of explanations as to why they shouldn't eat of that tree. Uh, just suffice it to say, it seems clear that God wanted to be the mediator between them and the knowledge of good and evil. He was probably doing something for their protection. And, and uh, you know, it's just like if... I don't know if you have children. Uh, I do. I, I have young children. So you can imagine a hot burner on, on the, the stove, let's say. And you would say to your, your child, do you have a son or a daughter? I have uh, two daughters and a son. Oh, great. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Thank so, you. Uh, so you can imagine saying to your, your daughters or your son, look, that's a hot burner. And, you know, don't go over there and put your hand down on it. And what if your son or your daughters would say, but dad, I want to experience that for myself. And you would say, oh, no, trust me, you can go through me on this and, and don't experience that hot burner for yourself because that's going to burn your hand and it could damage your hand for the rest of your life. Well, similarly, God just said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. That was his one prohibition. But then... Um, real, fa and, and real, it, real fast, Randall, why would he put the knowledge of tree and good and evil in... in why would he put it on earth in the first place? And, yeah, and obviously one of the things that the Bible is very clear on is that 
uh, one of the, the reasons why God created us is for us to love him. You know, love for anyone is not real love if it's not voluntary, you know, out of our will. Yeah. And, and so there, there was um, in some ways some testing going on and uh, allowing them to choose. And, of course, they chose to disobey because w- Satan took the form of a serpent. And we know that was Satan because of some things that are said elsewhere in the scripture. He took the form of a serpent and, and uh, deceived Eve. And she gave the fruit to Adam. And he ate. And they disobeyed. And in that moment, um, that's where uh, death entered into the world. That's where pain and suffering entered the world. That's where um, evil came into the world. Just in that moment. And... Before that, God had said, everything I've created is, is very good and it's blessed. But now it's no longer very good. It's no longer blessed. And he begins to announce some curses. He cursed the serpent, first of all. He said, you're going to crawl on your belly for uh, all your days. You're going to eat dust. He cursed the, the woman in childbirth, that she would have pain in childbirth. And he cursed the man that uh, worked his existence would be a struggle. It wouldn't just be, come as easily as it, it would before that, uh, that fall, we call it. And he cursed the ground itself. He said, no longer is the ground going to yield its fruit so easily. It's going to yield um, uh, thorns, for example. It's going to yield w- what we would call weeds uh, instead of the fruit of the ground as before. Um, And so instead of that realm that God made for his kingdom being a blessed realm and very good, now all of a sudden it was a cursed realm. But here's the interesting part. This is where Jesus comes in. Right in the middle of those curses, really in the beginning of those curses, when God is addressing the serpent. Real quick, sorry. I I want to get to this, but before you do, what was life like before Jesus was born? Before and I guess maybe you were about to get into that, but I'm kind of curious. After you know, <clears throat> sin entered sin entered the world and evil entered entered the world. Mm. What was life like during those times? Yeah, well, we don't know for sure, but the only thing that we can maybe go by is what the promise of restoration looks like. So if you go to the end of the story, and we're going to get there. God promises that there's going to be uh, a restored earth and our our existence is going to be restored on that restored earth. And, you know, you get to there and you talk about there being, uh, you know, no more death or no more disease, no more war. Um, Even within creation itself, the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and there's going to be... um, a virtual utopia. I mean, I, that's that's a, a word that came into existence um, long after you know the Bible was written. But that's the word that we use for that ideal conditions for um, for life. So uh, I, I want to go back though because yeah, yep. when God made this um, curse on the, the serpent, He made a promise, and He said, "I'm going to put uh, enmity or conflict. I'm going to put that conflict between you, serpent, you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed, your descendants, Satan, 
and the woman's seed or the woman's descendants. And then he talks about how that seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent or crush the head of the serpent. He says the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So you get the idea that there's going to be this conflict between the side of the serpent and the side of the seed of the woman, this conflict for the ages, we call it. The conflict between evil on the one hand, that's the serpent's side, and and good on, on the side of the seed of the woman. Now, we believe that the seed of the woman is the first promise given for, for Jesus. And by the way, seed of the woman is a very strange expression. I don't know if you're ready for this, but here it is. Um, you know, seed belongs to men. And, and actually the Hebrew word there is, is semen, the semen of the woman. So it's a very strange expression. And what it indicates, uh, now we know, it indicates that this person, whoever it is, is going to be born without the usual agency of a human father. God is going to be his father. And that means he's going to have the nature of God, who is a king, remember? And he's also going to uh, be a son of God. He's going to have um, the nature of a human being as well because of his mother being a human being. He will be the seed of the woman. And the implication of these verses here at the beginning is that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat the serpent. I mean, if a serpent bites you, you you are going to suffer. You may even die. But when you crush the head of the serpent, the serpent always dies. I mean, that's just the nature of the way that works. So this is indicating he's going to have victory over this. the, The seed of the woman is going to have victory over the serpent. He's going to crush his head. And by implication... As you read through this, the idea is he's going to forgive the disobedience and he's going to restore life to the way it was. That's the first promise that's given of uh, what we believe you know, is, applies to Jesus. Because from this point on in, in the Bible, um, for the rest of the Old Testament, the question really is, who is this person? Who is this promised seed of the woman? And uh, how can we get there? How can we get back to the way it was? Because if you can imagine, I mean, life in a utopia, if it's truly a utopia, would be great. If there's no death, no disease, no whatever like that. But all of that's gone now. And and so there's this tremendous desire to to get back to that. And, of course, over time, uh, God actually narrows the family line of this promised seed. So right away, you know, it starts with Adam and Eve, then you get Cain, Abel, and Seth is their third third son, but Cain kills Abel, so it can't be Abel's line. Can't be Cain's line, because Cain is is kind of a symbol of evil since he murdered his brother. So it's through the line of Seth, and then it gets narrowed again, it gets narrowed again and again, until you get to Abraham, and I'm sure you've heard of Abraham in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Abraham has two sons, um, Esau and, and Isaac, or Isaac and Ishmael, rather, not Esau, Ishmael and Isaac. And the promise gets narrowed to the son of Isaac. Then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. The promise gets narrowed to 
the family line of Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons that forms the nation of Israel and on and through into Old Testament history until finally you come to the, the time when Jesus is born. And Jesus is born of a virgin, just like we would expect as the seed of the woman. He lives a perfect life. He does these miracles. And the reason why he does the miracles is because he's going to make the claim that I am here representing God. I'm speaking for God. I'm representing him. And of course, if somebody says that, um, you know, they, they better be able to do something to prove it, you know, back it up, or else there's, there's something weird going on. So he did these miracles to prove that he is the son of God. The first miracle that he did was change water into wine. And maybe you've heard about that miracle. Yeah. He was at, at a, uh, a wedding, he changed water into wine. And some people ask, well, why, why did he do that first? I mean, if, if you were given miraculous powers, if I was given miraculous powers, we wouldn't probably even think about wine. We'd go down to the hospital and empty it out. You know, There's a children's hospital here in Indianapolis, and I'd, I'd rush down there and just do what, just go room to room and empty the place. Yeah. And, and that's what most of us would do. But Jesus turned water into wine. Why did he do that? He did it because the prophet Isaiah said that someday in that restoration of all things, there's going to be a great banquet with an abundance of food and an abundance of well-aged wine. And on that day, God is going to remove the, the veil of death over all people. And uh, he's going to, it says he's going to wipe away all tears from their eyes and, and remove death. And people are going to say, this is our God. We have waited for him. Here he is. And so Jesus turned water into wine as his first miracle to indicate to his disciples, hey, it's me. I'm the one that does this. And by the way, it's interesting because his disciples, they had just been following along after him until that point, and uh, they were intrigued, but now they started believing in him as the Christ. And so ultimately, um, Jesus was rejected by people in Israel, and um, they said that he was doing his miracles by the power of Satan. All right, so you got this big contrast here. The, they're claiming that he's doing these miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus said, no, I came here to defeat Satan. And, and how could uh, Satan be involved with me if I am defeating uh, disease and death and healing people who are blind and, and deaf and lame? How could Satan be doing that when that's the kind of stuff he, he traffics in? And so... Uh, you know, Jesus was rejected by them and they murdered him on the cross. And we believe that that was the, the bruising of his heel by Satan. But what's interesting is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day and that rolling of the stone away from that tomb and Jesus coming out and raising from the dead, we believe that was the beginning of the crushing of Jesus' head. Or Jesus of the Satan's head, not Jesus' head. You're good. Satan's head, and then um, uh, he was on earth for forty days, appearing to his disciples. Then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he was exalted as Lord. Now you've heard Jesus called Lord Jesus before. Yeah, I'm sure. 
The title Lord is just that. It's a title. And it's a title that was given to Jesus by God the Father because it, it, it uh, indicated he's the one that I promised long ago. He's the, the Lord of all, the Lord of lords, we say. And so Jesus was exalted at God's right hand. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that Jesus is going to return. And he's going to come back someday. And he's going to fulfill that promise to restore all things. And before he does that, though, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, no matter whether people believed in him or not here on the earth, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only difference is, is that if people wait until that moment to believe in Jesus, then what the Bible says is they're going to be punished for eternity. And, you know, I, I didn't make it up. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not my story. In other words, it's what the Bible says. And I, um, I really feel bad for people who refuse to believe in Jesus in this lifetime. But I, I think also it motivates me to tell others about Jesus and give them an opportunity just to make their own decision. Because as a believer in Jesus now, I gladly bend my knee and gladly confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe that with all my heart. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that time when he returns and do you th his promise. Do you think that the, the devil or Satan um, obviously knows about the return of Jesus? I'm, I'm not saying that the devil or Satan knows when specifically in the future that he will show himself. But it, with Satan being who Satan is, wouldn't couldn't Satan try and fool people into believing that he is he is Jesus and bow to me and it could be a, a different consequence for people here on earth? Yeah, absolutely so. So there's there's a um, um, there's a couple things really interesting related to that question. So let's talk first of all about just the end times. The end times very clear that uh, yes, there's going to be someone, that we typically refer to as the Antichrist, but I'm going to use the term beast out of the sea because that's the, the term that the book of Revelation uses. And there's going to be this person who's called the beast out of the sea, and that person is going to enter into an agreement with Satan. Now, you may have heard that uh, Satan tempted Jesus in Jesus' lifetime. And uh, the, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and, and 40 nights, and Satan tempted him at the end of that. And one of the things that Satan offered to Jesus was um, to be able to rule everything within the realm that he was offering if Jesus would just bow down to him. And Jesus rejected that deal. He said, no, no deal. I'm not going to do that. And then went on and, and started his earthly ministry. Well, the beast out of the sea is going to receive that same offer from Satan, according to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And Satan's going to offer him his throne, it says, and his authority, uh, his power, and his great authority. Those three things. So he's given it all up? He's given it to him, 
But there's a the part of the deal is that that will boomerang back to him, that the beast out of the sea will turn back to him and worship him, Satan. That's what he was asking Jesus to do, to worship him. The beast out of the sea will say, I'll do it. Jesus said no, the beast out of the sea says yes. Then it talks about the deception that, that is going to be part of that, that time frame. And one of the things that it says is uh, there's going to be a false prophet that joins up with that beast out of the sea. The beast out of the earth, this false prophet is called. And he's going to be able to call fire down from heaven. He's going to be able to do false miracles. False, not in the sense that they aren't real miracles, but false in the sense is that, that uh, what they're supposed to be pointing to is not true. You know, miracles are signs, and signs point to something. And in the case of the signs that Jesus did, they pointed to his identity as the, the Christ. In the case of the, the false prophet or the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, the things that they're going to do that will be deceptive, for sure, are going to um, be false in that they point to a lie. By the way, that's where the number 666 comes into the, the Bible story in that chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation 13. Uh, but here's something else that's probably in line with your question is that you remember um, the story of Noah in the Old Testament mm -hmm. and, and the ark, right? Yep. Uh, Noah's story is, first of all, I believe it's true, but what is really interesting about it to me is that Noah's story is, is sort of this template of Jesus' story in, in this way, uh, sort of a prophetic template of it. So Noah, in effect, uh, died when he went into the ark. It was like he was buried in the ark. And he came up out of the ark and uh, came up to a new life. And there was restoration on, on the earth. There was a, a new chance, so to speak, uh, for them to live. So there's ways in which Noah's story corresponds in many, many details prophetically to the, the life of Jesus and the story I went through with the seed of the woman. Um, so what's fascinating is that uh, over a hundred or so years after Noah, the Tower of Babel was built, and there was a guy named Nimrod. And one of the things that historians believe that Nimrod uh, did was that, that he tried to convince people that the enmity, the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman had been resolved, and that it has been resolved in the flood, and that now he, Nimrod, as the seed of the serpent, was to be the ruler of the world. And the tower that they built, you may have heard that uh, it was supposed to reach to the heavens. Well, they were not stupid people. They, they, they knew they're not going to build a tower that's going to reach into the, the stars. These people were engineers. They were architects. They were engineers. They had some sophistication. They knew a lot more about geometry than probably I'll ever know. They were smart people. So what they were doing is they were building what's called a ziggurat. And on top of the ziggurat, they were replicating 
the night skies, the zodiac, thinking that they were going to be able to make a connection with the heavens for the sake of calling down out of the heavens the utopia that they wanted to create on earth without God, leaving God set aside. And, and so they had this theory that, that yeah, uh, flood was really a bad thing, but in that tra tragedy, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, they, they made up, the conflict was resolved. Now, here I am, Nimrod, the seed of the serpent, worship me, we'll build this tower, we'll call down the restoration, and we'll have a utopia of our own. That's really what they were doing. They didn't succeed, obviously, and God split them up, he spread them out, and uh, just about every, uh, uh, what I would call false religion that exists on the earth, can you can see there are traces of it that go back to that that uh, false interpretation of the flood story. Uh, like Noah became known as the sun god, S-U-N, God. And of course that spread, as you know, that spread all over the world in yeah. every culture, that sun worship. Some people say, well, that's because people were trying to explain, um, you know, they didn't understand the sun, so they worshiped the sun, or they didn't understand rain, so they worshiped the rain. Well, no, they, that again is is sort of an arrogant way of looking at people of old. They were smart enough to know uh, certain things, but they understood their spiritual power in the world, and they associated that spiritual power with things like the sun, or things like the the cycle of the moon, or the the path of the sun through the zodiac, or maybe the the spirit that they attached to the uh, behavior of an animal, whatever. These were, uh, I mean, if you go to Japan today, you'll see J Japanese who are pretty sophisticated people. Under, they believe that their spirit attached to uh, a, a rock, a type of rock, or maybe a turtle, or something like that, a fox. So it's, it's not that people are just worshiping stuff they don't understand. They just understand there is spiritual power and they're trying to tap into that. And that's what Nimrod and the others were doing back in the day. And that has spread throughout history, throughout culture. And what's interesting in the Bible story is that is going to like, like a bunch of rivers coming back together to form one mighty river. All of those, those um, false religions that grew out of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel that spread throughout culture and history are going to come back together and coalesce under the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, which is happening and right now. It's happening now. It's the same. It's the same description of, of Nimrod as is what's happening right now. Yeah. Well, and, 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 I, and you see, there's some other interesting stuff with this because uh, if you go back to to Noah's story, I just give you two examples from Noah's story. If you go back to Noah's story, one is that. Uh, God makes it very clear in that story, and I'm going to read it. He says, Never um, will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done with the flood. He says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So there's a very specific promise that God makes 
about the climate in, in that verse. And, and I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't be good stewards of the climate. Sure. It, it bothers me if I'm driving along behind somebody that rolls down their window and throws out their, their Coke can or, oh, same. or trash or what I, I can't stand that. Same. I've been uh, probably 25, 26 different countries in the world. And there are some where they just do not take care of their environment. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't, I don't like the idea of filling the world with plastic and all of that kind of stuff. But here's what I know. God made a promise that there's going to be seasons. The earth is going to continue long enough for him to fulfill his promise of restoration. And then one of the interesting thing is that he gave the rainbow in that story as a, a sign of that. Remember, signs point to something. Right. And when we see a, a rainbow, the, the thing that it's pointing to is the fact that God is going to keep his promise. He has a plan. If you think about it, when Noah's looked out from the ark after the ark finally rests, I imagine that things looked in that moment a lot like they would have looked when God first created the world. Because it, when he first created the world, it says that the, the world was out without form and it was void and, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, it says. And I imagine that swirling water around the ark must have looked a lot like that. And it would have made Noah wonder, is this going to be just history repeating itself? We get to a certain point and we go back to that every time. Uh, we just go so far, God gets angry, there's trouble, and he takes us back to the beginning again. We just have this endless cycle. And it's as though God is saying, no, this is not going to be an endless cycle of, of rinse and repeat, no, no, uh, no pun intended there. It's not going to be that endless cycle of flood judgment followed by a bunch of years of, of good stuff, followed by some decline, followed by judgment, followed by a flood, followed by... It's not going to be that. God is essentially saying, I've got a plan. I'm moving that plan forward. I'm putting the rainbow in the sky as a token of my promise to fulfill my plan. Now, what's interesting to me, Paul, is that that today you see a lot of people in culture co-opting the sign of the rainbow to mean something else. It, it doesn't mean what they say it means. It, it's a symbol of God's promise. And then making sort of this religious appeal to climate change. And I, again, I'm not against being good stewards of the climate, but this religious part of it, I am against. And I think that that is uh, uh, something that, again, is comes out of that story of Noah. But there's some other things like that in the earlier parts of Genesis that we see rebellion of those, rebellion against those mandates on display now in our culture and in the culture of the world. And I do believe that it is a, a sign that uh, we're getting closer to the end of that story. Which I, I, I agree based upon everything that's happening and unfolding in front of me, the decay of society, the decay of relationships, the decay of the family unit, the de you know, there's just so much decay, right? Right. And just a couple questions to, to talk to, to talk or to ask you about what you just described. Um, I feel like Satan has a grasp on 
on our society today, especially Western society. Um, I don't subscribe to knowing what's going on in other countries and third world countries that don't, that aren't as developed as we are. I, I, I have no idea what's going on in those countries, but here where I live in these 50 States, it's dismal and it's, it truly is dismal. And it, and it almost to me feels like Satan has a foothold on our society. And I guess my question would be within God's plan, does he take into account that Satan's going to be pushing against him at all, at all costs and at all will, and could that prolong his plan? Yeah. First of all, I don't think that it's going to prolong his plan. Um, one of the things that, that uh, the Bible teaches is that there is going to be, there, there are going to be people who believe in Jesus. People are going to believe in Jesus. And of course, n- nobody starts out believing in Jesus. You you have to come to a point where you kind of make this decision. Okay, I I believe in Jesus, and 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 by the way, that's really important for a lot of reasons. Uh, among them is that through Jesus and His shed blood and death on the cross, we receive forgiveness of our sins because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus dies as our perfect substitute. He's called the Lamb of God in in the scriptures. And by the way, I'm not talking about organized religion or institutional religion here. I'm talking about this relationship that a person can have through faith in Jesus with him and the forgiveness that comes through him. So that's a a very important thing. But then as as time goes along, there's going to be a limited number of people who believe in Jesus. And uh, initially, there were some promises that God made to the Jews that he then expanded to include Gentiles as well. And, and actually, he intended Gentiles all along, but the Jews, they thought it was just for them. And it became clear that this was expanded to others who are not Jews, others like like uh, you or me. and. Yet there's going to be a limited number in, in that group. We don't know what that limit is. I mean, it, it's a very large number. Obviously, there's been you know, millions and billions of, of Christians over time. But there will come a time where the last one in that set will, will believe, and that group will be complete. And we don't know how that time will go. We don't know what will dovetail with that. One of the things I do know is that Jesus made very clear that uh, there are some signs that, again, point to the fulfillment of those promises. And uh, a lot of those signs that he, he, uh, he gave, we see on display today. And one of the things that the Bible talks about is, is 666 and the mark of the beast, right? Symbolism, and, yeah. Yeah, so everybody wonders about that. What does World 666 have to do with anything? And uh, I just want to say that, that uh, and this is probably another podcast, but 666 is a number that's tied to uh, the zodiacal system and solar science. It has, it has ties to that mathematically, not just religiously, but math- mathematically. And as a a consequence of that, it became a symbol of that rebellion against 
God's plan that grew out of the Nimrod and Babylonian system. So that number showing up in the book of Revelation, talking about a number that's going to be symbolic at the end as a mark of the beast, it's called, indicates that there's going to be a value system that's consistent with that same kind of Nimrod Babylonian mentality. And, and that goes back to the uh, rejection of something like God's promise about the climate, the, the corruption of the rainbow, even uh, the, the corruption of, of uh, uh, marriage as, you know, between a man and a woman. Uh, even within those, those kinds of going back historically into that religion of, of Nimrod and, and that rebellion, there was uh, things that were similarly related to uh, transgenderism. Even that shows up in, in the literature, in, in that history. So you, you see these things, the, the one, you know, the, the focus on having a single world government or a currency that is nowadays, we know a, a, a central bank backed digital currency, which yep. can be controlled. You know, it would, you can control whether or not somebody is able to spend it or how they spend it. Um, all of those things seem to be falling right in line with what Jesus said was going to happen at the end of the age. And it, it is fascinating do you think yeah. within God's plan, does God already know what's going to happen? Or, or are you suggesting that free will, he, he doesn't, he gave us choice and he wants to see what happens type of thing? Or, or the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I personally believe that the, the, uh, the battle, so to speak, is real. Okay. I don't think that this is just a movie or this is just something that we're just acting out and it's, uh, I, I think Satan believes he can win it. Um, he is known in the Bible as uh, the angel that was kind of the closest to God in the beginning and maybe has uh, power that uh, comes close to God's power. So I, I think that you know, Satan's goal, it seems to me, is to try to do two things. If he can prove God a liar, that's number one. If he can prove him to be a liar, then all bets are off, right? And then the second thing that he's always tried to do is to deny space in this world for uh, God to do what he says he's going to do. So remember, um, God created this world to be a place where his rule is fully honored and obeyed. And if, if Satan can deny God that, then again, all bets are off and he can potentially defeat him. So I, I think that there's going to be um, uh, a realness to this, but I believe that God will win and I believe Jesus will win. Now, the realness of it is such that I think there are going to be people who will be deceived into siding with Satan. And you know, I think that's that's uh, something, and, and and this the deception I think will go like this. I think the deception will go. Look, we can create our own utopia. We don't need God to do this. I think it'll be just like what happened at Babel. 
we can create our own utopia. And you, I mean, you hear people talking about, it. if you look at what is going on in the world, and I'm not talking politics now, it has a political dimension, but if you look at what's going on with the, the UN and its 17 sustainable development goals and the World Economic Forum yep. and some others, that some religious institutions that are in that, if you pull behind the curtain a little bit and look at how they describe the world they're trying to create, they are trying to create a Jesus-less utopia. That's what they're doing. For sure. They're doing the same thing as Nimrod. And so people will have a choice to believe in who Jesus is or to side with the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. No, for sure. So we are a little bit over the hour, but man, like there's, there's no way that there's just so much to talk about, you know, yeah. and that with, with what an hour can, I mean, there's only so much you can do within an hour. So what I'd like to do, um, I, I do have a, a couple more questions. I don't like to go too terribly long yeah, over yeah. an hour just for people's attention spans and, and all of that, including myself. Um, <laughs> I'd like to do a two part series if, if you're, if you're willing. Um, oh, absolutely. You, cool. You don't, yeah, that would be awesome. You don't have to commit now when we have each other's contact information. Yeah. yeah. I definitely like to do a two part series and, and just get into some more of the Bible. Cause I want to understand it more. I want to know as much knowledge as that, as, that my brain will allow my, or as much knowledge that my brain will allow to flow through my brain. Sorry. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm, cool. Um, but I do just have a couple of, you know, questions for you and sure. just however you want to answer them. Um, so again, we're, we're going to head a little bit out of the podcast realm of what we've been talking about, but we're still going to be on the same subject. Why would God create humans to be obedient to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fundamentally we believe that God is good. And I, I think that's a really important thing to, to stress. And, and so uh, human beings would be the recipients of his goodness and of his love. And so I, I don't know that there's anything, uh, well, I know there's not necessarily anything that would be bad or harmful or dissatisfying about uh, serving God in his goodness and, and experiencing his love. This really interesting verse of scripture that says perfect love casts out fear. And, and I love that, that verse. I heard someone say once there are really four movements of love, of God's love. The, the first movement is God's love to us. The second movement, our love in return back to God. And then the third movement would be our love for others, you know, spreading that out to other people. And then finally, being immersed, totally immersed in, in that love, in a community of love, in an existence of love. So, so I, th- I think when people think like, when, when, they, 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 when they feel like they have to be obedient to God, I think they look at it in a different way. Because what you're describing is like the true, what humans, if we were to live in a utopia with God, that's kind of what he means by being obedient to him. Not, not like with what's going on with the struggle and, and the carnage and all of those things. Okay. Exactly. And remember that learn, collaborate and create. So yeah, that, that's, that's what kind of bring me, brings me back, man. Thank you for bringing that back up, Randall. Yeah. We've gotten so far away from that. 
so yeah. far away from that. And what what kind of drove me to do what what led me here is watching Zeitgeist, and we've talked about that many times. I don't know if you've seen that documentary. It's a nine eleven documentary. And um, check it out. I would really like your opinion on it because they do open up in Zeitgeist about Jesus. Yeah. I will. Yeah, check it out. It's it's it was made back about fifteen years ago, I, I believe, or made ten to fifteen years ago. Peter Joseph is his name. There's a two part series, but the first part was, you know, I necessarily I again he goes into religion and he tries to debunk it type of thing. So yeah, I, yeah. I know you're not down with that, but I would still like to hear your opinions on it. Yeah. But the second part is kind of what made me open up my eyes on just the types of things that go on in our society. And it's just frustrating that we've came so f- we've came so far away from that. And I've always had this dream that if we could all just get along, work together and be one, then that would be the best thing for this world. And it's just, I don't know, man, I, that's just all I can hope for. Well, I totally agree with you. I think that would be great. I, I remember um, one of the things that Jesus said um, and taught very clearly was the importance uh, of loving others as yourself, right? He said yep. to love others as yourself. He said, love, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love others as yourself. And, you know, if we were to ask people, which would you prefer? Would you prefer to live in a world where everyone was loving their neighbor or live in a world where it was every person for himself? Which would you choose? I think all of us would choose Love your neighbor yep. as yourself. You know, that, that would be ideal. But what's really interesting is that Jesus didn't stop there when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, love your enemy. Love your enemy. Now, okay, so sorry. Now, you just opened up a whole other can of worms. Yeah. And thanks again. Yeah, this is, this is awesome. So I don't know if you've been seeing what's going on with Kanye West lately. Um, you, you know Kanye West, the famous yes, rapper. Yes, so. Yes, yeah. Just recently, he's been going on what people would say is anti-Semitic against the Jews yeah. and all and all of that sort. But there was a pod. It was I think it was one of the last podcasts he did is with Alex Jones, and in that interview, which you can only find on Infowars.com, um, Kanye West just kind of it, he was criticized heavily for coming out, and they were suggesting that he said he loved the Nazis and he loved Hitler. But what he had said, and and if you listen to the Alex yeah. Jones interview, he says. He says, you know, I'm, I'm ye, I'm Jesus. Like, or he, he's not saying that he is, but he's yeah, like, yeah. he's like, I, I do love, I do love the Nazis. I do love Hitler because they are my enemy and I, and I'm going to love everyone. You know what I'm saying? So people misinterpreted that and saying like that he's for it and was for what happened in those times when he was just suggesting, he's like, I want to be like Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I want to love my enemy. I want to love everyone. Sorry. That's just. Spark- yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, you know, saying about loving Nazis. That's kind of a trick question. I mean, none of us love the Nazis. I don't love the Nazis. And that's yeah, exactly. He uh, wasn't saying yeah, that, but yeah, in a Jesus way yeah. he was. Yeah. But loving your enemy, you know, I think sometimes people could dismiss that by leaping to that talk about the Nazis and really where the the intention starts is, well, what about the person that sits across from you at work? Or what about the person that lives down the street from you? Or what about the person that just cut you off in traffic? You know, those, that's where it's a lot more real for us, right? Right. And, and uh, the, the thing is that uh, the point that I think Jesus would make is having nothing but love for people like that, 
who are our enemies in that sense. That's not really anything, that's not something any of us really do right. 100% of the time or well. For sure. And here's, here's what I, I tell people is that um, I, I believe it's impossible to do that without Jesus' help. And it's possible to do it through Jesus. And Jesus even said, if the only people you love are the people who love you back, what good is that? He said, even like the unbelieving Gentiles do that. But if we can love through him, through our faith in him, he transforms us into the kind, little by little, he transforms us into the kind of person he wants us to be. And, you know, someday that transformation now that happens in bits and pieces and fits and starts in the restoration of all things, that's going to be complete and, and uh, just uh, epic. <laughs> and, and I think that's where we're going to see the joy of living in that kind of learn, collaborate, create in the environment of love. Okay. All right. Just like one or two more and then we can call it quits, man. Sorry. This, this is cool. Um, uh, so again, I'm kind of going back into my past a little bit. I got into, you know, um, just trying to find as much information as possible. And you go into the Roman Catholic Church, you go over into Europe where you have these old sacred temples, um, just with vast amounts of just old school knowledge. You know, they have libraries full of just books and Bibles. Right. Um, so like the biggest thing for me is, is um, what's underneath those churches. You know, you, you know, there are these secret vaults, you know, that there have been people who looted uh, buildings in the past and who had looted the, this sacred information. What are your thoughts on maybe like the Catholic church or whatever other types of big, you know, named churches where they have these secret libraries or they're not even secret. You just can't get access to them as a normal, a normal civilian. You have to be of someone of power to access these types of books. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, th I think, first of all, there is such a difference between what I'll call ordinary Christianity and the kind of institutional Christianity that something like the Catholic Church represents. And so, you know, I, I would never advocate for that institutional Christianity. And part of the reason why is because um, that value system that they put on display is so far from what Jesus taught that it, it has to be obvious. I mean, I remember Peter and John shortly after Jesus was uh, exalted into ascended into heaven, exalted at God's right hand, they came across a man that was lame from birth and he asked them for alms, you know, just a few coins to help him in his existence. And what they said is silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we'll give to you. So in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they, they healed him in that moment. But the point is, they said, we don't have silver. They, they, these guys were poor. You know, Peter, the, the first pope, so to speak, was poor. Uh, I don't believe in the popes. But anyway, sure. Peter was, was poor. Uh, somebody uh, once quoted a, a pope as saying, we can no longer say silver and gold have we none. I mean, they're one of the richest institutions, organizations on the planet. Yep. And then that person that was 
somebody else spoke out and said, well, neither can you say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I mean, it's just like they might have silver and gold, but it's not doesn't represent what New Testament Christianity is about. I'm just going to say that okay. in my opinion. Sure. Um, but as far as those documents, you know, sure, uh, I I would not be uh, afraid of anything coming out. Uh, I, I would not personally, you know, I, like watching Zeitgeist, for example. I don't have any trouble uh, listening or hearing or being exposed to some uh, alternate view of things because I, I really believe there's a good, uh, solid thinking and explanation for you know anything we could talk about on any subject. For so, sure. Yeah. Okay, so this is my last question, Yeah. which I don't want to – yeah, I got many more, but this is my last one. What, yeah. are your, what are your thoughts on the firmament, and what does the firmament mean in the Bible? Because there's a big yeah. debate – um, you know, the world for such a long time was believed to be flat. And then for the past 500 or thousand years or so, we've found it to be spherical through science and, and whatnot. But there is a very large movement that's happening again, where people believe that the firmament means that the earth is just a flat realm. So I'm kind of curious on just your findings in the, in the Bible and what the firmament is. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is a, this is also another, just a whole nother episode, but uh, it's pretty clear in, uh, in my opinion, if you break things down, that um, the, let's just take Adam, for example, the first human being. One of the things God said to him is, I'm putting the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky to be uh, for seasons and for signs, right? So he, he had... Uh, a couple of reasons for them, and also for measuring days and years. Now, if you think about Adam for a moment, measuring the length of a day would be very easy because you got evening and morning, and it's the first day. Evening and morning, it's the second day, so on. Um, evidently, according to the Bible record, Adam was very good at this, and he kept a tally. And he was able to observe cycles of the moon and he was able to observe cycles of the sun. And you get to Genesis chapter five, for example, and there's a list of people from Adam to Noah, and it gives the length of their lifetimes in zodiacal years. For that to happen, these people had to be paying attention to the sun, moon, and stars and their, their movements in the skies. And I'm going to say out of that zodiacal science, out of that solar science, not, I'm not talking about the zodiac now in terms of your, your uh, what, what do you call zodiac it? Zodiac sign, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's not, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the actual science part of it. Out of that uh, came a, a knowledge of geometry. And you know, I, I'm, what I'm saying to you is that we could – spent a lot of time talking about this too, but it's clear that they were able to deduce things about the earth and its, its shape and the movement of the sun and the stars. I don't think that uh, this, this idea of there being like a flat earth, uh, even the revival of that today, I, I think it's a bunch of hokey, to be honest with you. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So well, I, I just, think that there's, I think there's a, 
there's actually, we don't talk about it too much, but there's a geometry that the scriptures contain that is, is quite interesting. Even in the story of Noah itself, um, Noah was in the ark from the beginning of the flood to the end for 370 days. And there's a timeline, a very detailed timeline that's contained in that story that shows that he was keeping track of the time in what's called a zodiacal year. A zodiacal year differs from a solar year because a zodiacal year has 360 days. A zodiacal year is 365.24 or whatever. Right. And he was in um, for these, these months, had 30 days each. So in effect, um, he was keeping track of time on the basis of the zodiacal year. And that just kind of opens the floodgates, no pun intended, for all this other knowledge that these people must have had about geometry and the way things work for them to be able to do some of the amazing things that they were able to do. For sure. Yeah, no, again, like you said, it'd be a whole nother podcast. So yeah. <laughs> Randall, dude, it's been, uh, it's, it, it's been great, man. Uh, I greatly appreciate your time. I, I appreciate the podcast again. I hope we can do a two part series or even furthermore, whatever it is that we, you and I decide that we can do, but where can we find you, man? Where can people find your book? What, what about your website? Yeah. So that particular book, Exalted Lord is a book that it's going to narrow down to just the, uh, like the climax of the story, like I was saying before, uh, but it's still, it's available on Amazon. Uh, I have a website called Gospel Story Arc, and those are three words, but all combined, Gospel Story Arc, and that's A-R-C, not A-R-K, dot org, gospelstoryarc.org. And uh, on that website, there you can find some other resources, including a summary of, of that larger story of Jesus. And we tell it, um, just like the Bible lays it out in terms of exposition, inciting incident, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, and the untying. So it's, it's just a fascinating way that God is wired into us, that story nature. And For sure. It's, it's laid out in that way. Okay, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll put the links in the description below on, on the audio version and the video version as well so people can find you. Yeah, and I just want to say I really, um, I've wa watched a number of your episodes, and uh, it's been a pleasure to, to watch that. And, and I, I like, uh, you know, interacting with you. I like listening to you, and I just think it's interesting, interesting talk. Yeah, no, and thank you very much for that. It means a lot, man. We get that quite a bit. We're just hoping the algorithms can start going in our favor a little bit. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, Randall, been a pleasure, man. Um, thanks for joining. We'll chat with you soon. All right. Thanks so much, Paul. Have a good night. You too. Right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Randall Gilmore. Check out his book. Like I said, all those descriptions uh, for his website and where you can find his book will be in the links below. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast for its entirety. It was a very uh, it was a, a decently lengthy podcast, but man, it's fascinating uh, subjects and really good uh, conversation there with Randall. The best way you can support Talk Junkies is just one, just watch the video, share it with all your friends and family, tell our junkies out there, stay fly, and ring the bell.